Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text hope NY in New York. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. And now for something completely different. Welcome in to another episode of the Get Cocky Podcast, part of the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. I'm your host, Pearson Fowler, and today's show will hopefully be a very enlightening one. Uh, Saturday's 38-27 to loss to Florida was a strange game, but Will Helms has the advanced numbers that will hopefully tell the tale of the game because we all know the box score clearly does not. So we're going to talk to Will for his usual Monday segment in just a minute. But first, I wanted to take a minute to thank all of you so much for listening and for subscribing. This has been a super weird football season, and I've really enjoyed the opportunity to have a new format to discuss it. And none of this would have been possible without y'all tuning in on the reg. So thank you so much for that. And if you're new here, welcome. And if you've not yet rated, reviewed, or subscribed to the podcast, please do so. Uh, This really helps us. And when you subscribe to the podcast, you'll also get AC which Wes and Chris and I do on Wednesdays. You'll also get Wes and Chris. They do their no huddle ACP uh, either Sunday night or Monday morning just after the Carolina games. You'll also get Wes and Chris's commit cast plus all the fun stuff that we have coming up that we're going to be doing with basketball season, which is right around the corner. So don't forget to subscribe. Thank you all so much. As we get started today, I'll just go ahead and say up front, the thesis of today's podcast, as it so often is, is both of these things can be true. So let me get started by saying That officiating did not cost South Carolina the football game on Saturday, but it did have a bigger impact on the game than any other game that I can remember watching and certainly any other game this year. The only other one that really comes to mind is the Alabama game. And I mean, if you honestly say 
does you know does Carolina win that Alabama game if not for the missed field goal getting called back and the great punt that flipped field position and a couple other calls that maybe go Carolina's way? No, I mean I, I think it's really a stretch to get there. Alabama won that game by 23 points. Does Carolina win this past Florida game if the officials don't gift the Gators to? Crucial touchdowns, including the long 75-yarder that as much as anything took the life out of the stadium that was just starting to get going? Maybe. I, I don't think it's as much of a stretch to get there as it would have been with the Alabama game, and I don't just say that because it was an 11-point margin. I say that because Carolina was leading after three quarters and had been dominating both lines of scrimmage. Now, unfortunately, this is a part of the game. Not just football, not just college football. This is all sports. This is what happens. And when I ask every single one of you listening who was in the Super Bowl last year, you're going to tell me that it's the Patriots and the Rams, and you're going to be right. You're not going to tell me that it was the Patriots and it should have been the Saints. At least that's not going to be your first take. And that was a case of a missed call that was so egregious that the NFL literally changed the rules. And it wasn't this bad for Carolina. It was pretty terrible, but it wasn't like Nikel Roby Coleman, whose name is going to live on in infamy as the answer to a trivia question for years to come, despite having a very average career. I mean, he's basically the Ted Stepien now of, of pass interference, or the Ted Stepien of the NFL, however you want to characterize him so this is part of the game this kind of stuff happens and it hasn't even happened this saturday what happened to carolina wasn't even like the worst instance of football officiating in the last calendar year and to be honest i'm not even that interested in, in relitigating what those missed calls were on saturday it's been rehashed already to death all over twitter i weighed in i talked about it a little bit on my radio show today it will probably come up again throughout the week and i'm not going to totally avoid it but where i wanted to go with this today is is not even just the missed calls the false start the offensive fast interference the holding are the three that immediately jumped to mind but for me the problem is and i will get off this in just a second because i hate that this is a story as much as you do it really should never be the biggest story or one of the biggest stories coming out of a game and that's actually sort of where I'm going with this, but the problem for me is accountability. No other group of people in this entire country is as protected as officials in sports, not coaches or players or even the freaking POTUS. And at the heart of it, I do understand. In the case of college in particular, these guys are part-time employees and frankly, people are lunatics about sports. Now, I don't know if this has happened in the United States. I'm sure it has, but frankly, I don't want to do the research to find out. But in other parts of the world, officials are literally murdered for making bad calls. Now, obviously, this is such an extreme case that I, I don't even need to mention this or how horrible it is. And I would, would like to think that we're civilized enough that that shouldn't be necessary in terms of like having police escort these guys out of stadiums. But in a weird way, the protection of the refs and refusal to you know comment on calls and you know be honest and transparent about these things or just acknowledge that they make mistakes because that's part of the game and people are all willing to accept that. I, I guess the, the best example that I think of is when Jim Joyce cost Armando Galarraga that perfect game, he missed the call at first base. The guy was clearly out. He called him safe. And I think, I mean, I remember it being like pretty immediate. I don't know if it was the next day or the next week or it very well could have been right after the game. But Jim Joyce was, was like so upset and he was, you know, saying, you know, people make mistakes and that's not okay. And I cost this guy a perfect game. And he was like, I think he was even crying about it. He was getting emotional. And even after that, Armando Galarraga, you know, came out and supported the umpire because people were, were really upset about it. But now it's become a story that's, it's a, it's a much more positive story now, years later. And like, even in the, like sort of short-term aftermath, you know, again, like the day after people were like, oh, that's awful. He needs to never umpire again. Like screw this guy, you know, sending him threats on Twitter or whatever. Cause he cost someone a perfect game, which like, you know, totally sucked. But 
his transparency, his willingness to come out and be human and say, oh, you know, I, I made a mistake. It cost this guy that really humanized him. And that made it a lot easier to pull for him and be like, oh, yeah, you know, that sucks. That's part of the game. And everyone still remembers Armando Galarraga's near perfect game uh, to the point that there's even a Wikipedia page for it. you can find literally I think it's called Armando Galarraga's near perfect game or 28 out perfect game or something like that. But that was only possible because Jim Joyce came out and was like willing to accept that he made a mistake. And I, I think that is, I think that was like a very noble thing to do. And clearly people appreciated it. I very much appreciated it. And I think that's what's missing here. Now, to be fair, it's not like Carolina was cost a perfect game or, you know, whatever other blown calls that we've seen throughout the year, like Nicole Roby Coleman's pass interference, you know, who, who even knows if, if, the, if the Rams end up scoring on that play? There are other opportunities they could have won the game. That didn't cost them a game, and it's not like it was the Super Bowl. It was the NFC Championship, so like the second biggest game of the entire season. But that's even still a little bit different than a perfect game. But the point of all this is it's the principle. It is the principle of accountability that's lacking, especially within college athletics, to the point where Will Muschamp could sit at the podium after the game and criticize himself. He could criticize his assistants. He could criticize the fans. He could criticize the vendors. We've seen that before. Uh, I, I don't remember if it was at a baseball game or a basketball game, but there was some Carolina game in the last couple of years where they ran out of water, or maybe that was even a football game. I don't know. You can criticize the vendors. You can criticize your own players. You can criticize the other team's players. You can criticize the other team's coach. You can criticize absolutely everything that you want to with no repercussions other than maybe some people lashing out at you on Twitter. But the second you open up your mouth about an official, you get slapped with a fine. And that is absolutely preposterous. There's no reason for it. People are much more forgiving in general when other people eat crow and, and admit that they're wrong. And if coaches were allowed to criticize officials which they should be because again like we're just like controlling speech here this is basically a police state which you know I'm, you know the ncaa it, it like really is but i i just hate how far it goes let the let the coaches and players and whoever criticize the referees and then let the referees clap back let them have their own press conference after the game where they can where they are asked questions about you know calls that they did or didn't make that way there's a little more accountability there's a little bit more pressure on them i don't know what goes on internally we would never know about it and we don't even like necessarily need to know about it um i'm not like out for blood or anything like that again i just i, I want some accountability and i, I like transparency I, I wish someone were able to ask the official after the game and say hey you know wh why did you make this call what did you see let him explain himself and then we can have like a discussion about it and some people would be like oh i you know i sort of see your perspective and other people would disagree but it at least creates sort of a healthy dialogue and a healthy environment but right now what we have is is just this this and just it's just us versus them that that sort of mentality that is a direct result of there being no transparency from the office of officials to the fans coaches players etc and i can kind of speak to this from experience because you know i'm, I'm not an official but in terms of someone who's um performance for lack of a better word opinions ideas thoughts whatever which is it's a form of expression um that is sort of out in the open i'm doing it right now and i take all sorts of criticisms from people all the time and i think it's great i love it i like to take like to think i take most criticism in stride i'm always open to i know that i can be better at absolutely everything that i do so when people say stuff i'm like oh, okay is this is this legit criticism and if so like you know what can i do to fix this but I also try to respond to people. I'm like, okay, well, you think I'm an asshole? Why do you think I'm an asshole? Maybe I'll work on that. Maybe, you know, you think I'm stupid. Okay, well, what, what have I said that's stupid? Let me try to correct that. Let me try and strengthen my foundation of knowledge for, like, this one particular thing that you don't think I'm very smart about. Or maybe I'll disagree with you. But the point is I, I try to engage with it, and I, I think that makes it easier. In my experience, people will be like, 
hey, you're dumb. And I'll be like, oh, cool. Thanks for listening. Why do you think I'm dumb? And they're like, well, oh, no. Like, I, I don't actually think you're dumb. It's like they weren't expecting me to respond. So there's a there's a human element that's that gets removed from the equation when officiating, I guess, like officiating front offices treat their individual officials like this. But anyway, I, I think this also gets to another sort of interesting question, which is a much bigger question, long-term kind of question slash possible solution that's wrapped up in like a whole bunch of other things. I mean, the college football is changing before our very eyes. Maybe this will be part of the plan. Maybe it won't. But I think it's so curious that as big as college football has gotten as a business, it's still part-time employees that are like the ultimate adjudicators of everything right and wrong that happens over the course of a football game. Now I get that it's part-time and that the football season is, is just a third of the year. So these guys can't work 12 Saturdays and then do nothing the rest of the year. I don't even know what the compensation is, but it seems like, there is enough like the the college football business has gotten big enough that I feel like they would want the game to be pristine. They wouldn't want this kind of controversy. The SEC doesn't want it. The NCAA doesn't want it. The Big 12, the SEC, they don't want to have to deal with this. Uh, the best officials are the officials that you don't notice. It's like having a great offensive line. Like You just don't want to notice these guys. I feel like college football and the conferences individually would want to invest in, I don't know if it's more training. I don't know if it is something that resembles full-time or, or what it is, but it seems like there there is a way... Uh, to fix this and to make it better so that we don't have to sit here and talk about it because as much as you know the sec is just keeping their mouth shut and it's like people are like oh well you know they're they clearly don't care they're complacent i mean the reality is this probably drives them crazy they probably hate having to deal with this and they're just in a position where they just don't feel compelled to actually say anything or make any sort of public statements because that's how they operate but i promise this is not what they're going for they don't want this to be the storyline coming out of a conference game now the bad news is none of this is going to change. Like I said, not in the immediate future. This That last solution, if it's a solution, which I'm not even sure that it is, is a long way away anyway. Um, Carolina has just been on the wrong end of it a lot more this season than usual. So that's the bad news. The worst news is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Carolina didn't actually lose this game because of the officiating. They lost it because they continue to be bad late in games. Now this season, 7 of 12 games have been played. Carolina has been outscored 66-45 to 45 in fourth quarters. And... If you take out the Charleston Southern game, which you absolutely should, Carolina has been outscored 59 to 24. Yowza! Okay, wait. Let's go back to last year. Uh, actually, last year is 79 uh, to 79. So actually dead even in the fourth quarter, which is better than I expected when I started to go down this train of thought. But if you take out Coastal and Chattanooga, it's 64 to 58. So in the last 17 games against FPS opponents, Carolina has been outscored 123 to 82 in the fourth quarter alone. Now, I could probably go further and factor out garbage time because Carolina outscored Georgia 7 to nothing in the 2018 Georgia game, but obviously that game was over midway through the third quarter, so that doesn't count, but it's too much math and, and too much time, and, and y'all don't really care, or rather, you get the point. Last year, a lot of the fourth quarter slash late game troubles particularly in the Florida game, which, by the way, side note, South Carolina has been outscored 35-7 to in the last two fourth quarters against Florida, so that's a disaster. But last year, a lot of this was related to terrible defense from a unit that had just been ravaged by injury all year, and this year it seems to be more offensive anemia than anything else. Now, we've talked before about what the culprit of that seems to be. We talked, you know, especially after the North Carolina game, uh, that I'm very much in the camp that conservative offensive slash general team approach, which trickles down from Will Muschamp, was the culprit. But this week it made a pretty compelling case to me that it might not all be on Will Muschamp and Brian McClendon getting too conservative. Now, again, I still think that's kind of the case, but this weekend's not necessarily the best game to reinforce that point because, 
it was raining and Carolina was trying to throw it around and frankly just couldn't. So it's not like the coaching staff had a lot of options. But that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make here. Carolina keeps having reasons for why things aren't working out either in general or in this case late in games. And I say reasons because they aren't excuses, and I'm not one of those people that can't or won't differentiate reasons from excuses. I think that's really dumb. I think, I don't know, that's kind of like a coaching thing, it seems. That's not me. I, I, I try to exercise more nuance than that. Uh, but in the case for Carolina, there are reasons for recent shortcomings. Like last year, you know, a million injuries on defense and, you know, inability to run the football because your running backs just aren't that good. And, you know, Jake Bentley isn't that good. And this year, you know, it starts out, oh, well, Jake Bentley actually just isn't that good. And then he gets hurt and benched or some combination of the two. And, you know, uh, it's the defense that can't tackle or, oh, you know, Ryan Holinsky was hurt and, you know, didn't practice this week or the ball is wet. I mean, take your pick. There have been a lot of them. There have been a lot of some of those are excuses. Some of those are reasons. I would say most of them are, are pretty legit reasons. But Carolina's at the point now, and it was on display against Georgia, a game in which Georgia made mistakes. Carolina did not make mistakes. Obviously, that helped propel Carolina to victory, but they were, you know, even in the margins, they were close enough that if Georgia doesn't turn the ball over four times, Carolina doesn't win, but it probably still would have been a competitive game. Like, Carolina has the talent that they are good enough to be competitive with most of the teams that they play. But they're at the point where it doesn't need to be excuses or reasons anymore. They need solutions. You know who else is dealing with a wet ball on Saturday? Kyle Trask. You know who else has started actually fewer games than Ryan Helinski? Kyle Trask. You know who is playing on the road on top of all of this? Yeah, that's right. It's Kyle Trask. Kyle Trask, who also just made more plays down the stretch of that game than Ryan Helinski. And that was the difference. Now, I'm not saying Ryan Helinski is, is bad or should be benched or isn't going to be good or even that he lost the game for Carolina because none of that is true or fair. But at some point, you just got to go out there and make plays. Sure, the referees gifted Florida 14 points that they may have gotten anyway. R.J. Roderick made two terrible plays that led directly to touchdowns, and Florida scored 38 on the road. It's a tall task to ask an offense that hasn't yet scored 30 points against an FBS opponent to score 40 in a game. But the fact that players are making plays in those same conditions, dealing with injuries or whatever, playing above their pay grades, and just making plays late in games, only it's not... Carolina players is troubling like people win these games and it's not Carolina most of the time because their players aren't the one making plays on the stretch I mentioned right off the top the stats for this game are pretty even and like shockingly so when you consider the 11 point final score margin I'm fascinated to see what the advanced numbers from the game look like because on the one hand they should be pretty good since all the other numbers are about even and Carolina was better on third down and time of possession and running the football but on the other hand maybe these 11 points, these sort of mysterious 11 points that separated Carolina from Florida on Saturday will actually show up in the pro football focus number. So we're going to talk to Will Helms here in just a second to see if they actually explain what happened in this game because it was a weird game and I haven't totally figured it out yet. So here's Will Helms. All right, on the phone with me now, as always, for his normal Monday segment, Will Helms, who's got all the pro football focus numbers that I'm hoping can make some sense out of the 11-point margin for Carolina. And, I mean, really, it was more like an 18-point margin. Carolina got a touchdown kind of in garbage time. But when you look at the box score, the number was very even. Carolina had more total yards, more rushing yards. They were better on third down, better time of possession. Turnovers were even. But there's something that's missing because, again, Carolina lost the game by 11 points at home. Is there any big trend that you notice in looking at the pro football focus numbers that explains that deficit? So I'm, 
actually going to use um, some S&P numbers uh, from Bill Connolly that actually I think do a really good job of um, helping that this week. Um, one of the things that South Carolina has been really, really bad at this season, I'm talking like one of the worst in the country, is success rate on passing downs. Um, so passing downs would be defined as basically second and long, third and long, things like that, where you know, you're going to pass more often than you're not going to. And typically, um, around the league, um, teams are going to be less successful on those downs. If, he, if you're in third and 25, technically a successful play would be a first down. Um, so the success rate is a lot lower on average. Um, but South Carolina is like 126th or 127th. I'm not quite sure off the top of my head um, in the country in that. And Saturday was another one of those. Um, so if we're looking at success rate um, – South Carolina's success rate was actually really good, well above average for where um, they have been, but their passing, uh, passing down success rate was less than 20%. Um, Ryan Holinsky on those um, downs was four for 15 with 37 yards, um, took a sack and averaged two yards an attempt um, on those basically, all right, we basically have to pass the ball because it's second and long, third and long. Um, and South Carolina's been really bad at that all season. And, um, really showed against Florida um, because, you know, uh, their success rate, Florida's wasn't much better at 29%. South Carolina was at 19%. Whereas on standard downs, you're, you're first and 10, you're kind of, if you're moving the ball, um, second and five, things like that, South Carolina was successful um, more than 50% of the time, which is well above national average. Um, so that's something that I saw, um, saw during the game, and then the numbers backed that up. Um, and then the other thing is that um, while South Carolina's defense was very good, limited Florida to less than four plays per drive um, and pretty decent yards per play, um, their points per scoring opportunity, Florida's was 6.33 points per opportunity, which basically means seven would be perfect. Um, so national average is about a 4.4. So Florida is about two points more per opportunity to score than would be average. And so even if they had regressed to the mean on that, South Carolina had gotten one sack when needed. Um, and think about that fourth down play where um, Javon Kimball just about um, sacked Kyle Trask. You get one of those stops and it's a completely different sort of game. So what exactly is defined as an opportunity in this points per opportunity? So a lot of it is um, field position. It takes into account average field position, takes into account um, different advanced stats like um, where you are with the ball, you know, what's the time of possession, um, what is the um, – how's your field goal kicker, um, what, you know, did you get – enter the red zone at, you know, second or third and nine, or did you enter the red zone at second and one um, and have, have a pretty good opportunity and uses basic national averages there um, to see what you would be expected to score. So normally in those opportunities, a lot of times it's, you know, plus side of the field, you get a turnover there. Um, you get good field position on a bad, you know, bad punt, things like that. Um, each drive is going to have a little bit, you know, would be, oh, your opportunity here is kind of low. Oh, your opportunity here is really high. And so um, Florida ended up getting, um, was only at 0.38 opportunities per drive. So it basically said on about one out of every three drives, um, they had the opportunity to score, uh, maybe a little bit more than one out of three drives. Um, but when they did have the opportunity to score, they averaged a touchdown basically every time they had um, the chance to score a touchdown. That's absurdly opportunistic, and I'm guessing a real outlier for Florida offensively and Carolina defensively? 
Absolutely. Um, across the season, South Carolina's actually been really good at that. Under Will Muschamp, they've been one of the best uh, teams in the country at that, um, whether that's red zone defense or um, you think about back to the Georgia game, if they get a timely sack um, over time, they did a really good job of forcing a long field goal, um, that kind of stuff. And against Florida, it just didn't happen. You think about J.C. Horn's interception, which, by the way, I don't know if he'll ever get an interception at this point, <laughs> as many as he's had dropped or he's called cursed. back and things like that. Um, but you think about a penalty on that, um, really that drive, I think they had three or four chances to stop Florida short, and Florida just kept going and, um, you know, eventually was able to punch it in for um, a touchdown in what seemed like forever on that, you know, short, uh, short field position drive. I'm really glad there's a number for that because my biggest takeaway, it's been really hard for me to make heads or tails of this game, which has kind of been the case for several Carolina games this year, but this even more than others because – Again, not only were the stats so similar, but uh, the only thing that I could really identify is that Florida just kind of made more big plays. Obviously, the 75-yard touchdown, which, I mean, really shouldn't have happened for a couple of different reasons. But even you know beyond that, you mentioned Kyle Trask being able to avoid the sack on the third, and I think it was the third and eight, right before they scored the go-ahead uh, touchdown to set up a fourth and three, which was you know also then a great play by Kyle Trask to roll out to his left and you know find a receiver downfield to get the first down to keep the drive alive, uh, to, I mean to keep the ball, to not give it back to Carolina, and then score the go-ahead touchdown a couple plays later. There was obviously the big play when they scored the first touchdown, which was, seemed to be a defensive error for Carolina. So I guess my summary was just Florida made more big plays, even if that didn't necessarily show up in the stat sheet, but it sounds like it is sort of showing up. Um, in, in the advanced metrics, at least in this S&P. Um, and the quarterback play in particular, because you started with that, and that seemed to be the biggest difference for me too, because it was big plays made by Kyle Trask and not made by Ryan Holinsky. What was the disparity in how each of them graded out on Saturday? So actually there wasn't a huge difference between how they graded out. Um, Holinsky actually graded out about a tenth of a point better. They were both slightly below average. Um, but a, a lot of that has to do with um, so uh, Florida's, Skill players had some really good um, grades, especially uh, Jacob Copeland. Uh, one of their receivers had an uh, 85 offensive grade, which was the best for either team. Um, and then, you know, Kyle Trask ended up with a 58.3, and Ryan Holinsky ended up with a 59.2. So Ryan actually graded out a little bit better than Trask. Um, but I do think a lot of that has to do with um, Kyle Trask made a couple big plays. Um, but other than that, uh, South Carolina contained him pretty well. Um, and he really wasn't that good. And we even think about the, you know, the first long touchdown looked like um, Jamie Robinson and uh, R.J. Roderick got a little tangled up there or, um, you know, kind of took a bad angle or something and ended up being a jump ball that, you know, break a tackle and run for a touchdown. Um, and then a lot of the other plays um, seemed to be a lot of Florida's receivers making plays, not consistently, um, but making a big play here or there that really changed it. But, I mean, honestly, I think the biggest, difference in this game it's not going to be any one stat that we can look at but this game you had the two plays that stuck out to me were the um florida's fourth down conversion uh if south carolina stops them if south carolina gets um you know javon kinlaw gets to the quarterback there which by the way he lined up and showed everybody in the world what he was going to do and then pretty much did it uh, successfully lining up about a yard and a half off the ball and just bull rushing straight through the center um but if he gets to trask there i think it's a completely different game and then you think about the 75-yard touchdown run, um, have a missed tackle there, have pretty obvious false start that was missed, a pretty obvious holding that was missed. Um, and those two plays really end up being the difference in the game. Yeah, I don't know if this shows up in S&P or in uh, pro football focus numbers, but I think we can all agree that 
even though Carolina had some guys that didn't have great games, Florida probably had some guys that didn't grade out well. I think the worst grade of the day goes to Matt Austin for his attempted explanation for why that wasn't a hold on the touchdown run. Yeah, that was kind of weird, and I <laughs> did not understand that at all. Uh, I mean, clearly he didn't understand it either, but can we just go ahead and give him like a pro football focus, like zero out of 100? Yeah, we should probably do that. Um, somebody suggested um, the other day, I think on Twitter, that um, you use, that they use different um, conferences, uh, referees, because they'll have no problem saying that the SEC referees are horrible. But mm-hmm. um, Matt Austin was definitely trying to stick up for his guy there, and I don't think he did that very successfully. Yeah, no, didn't make a very compelling case on that. But um, I, that that is neither here nor there at this point. I guess there's no way to, to assess these missed calls in terms of the numbers, so we'll just focus on, I guess, what we do actually have raw data for. Um, I am pleasantly surprised to hear that Holinsky graded out well, although he clearly missed some deep balls, and that was a difference for Carolina. Uh, but in terms of the offense, what they did exceptionally well all day was run the football. I was a little bit worried after Rico Dowdle went on early. Still no word on his injury. May get something from Will Muschamp tomorrow during his press conference, although I wouldn't expect a whole lot. Uh, but in his absence, Tavian Feaster had a career day 25 carries, 175, I think it was, yards, and a touchdown. I was surprised to hear you say that he didn't grade out with the highest offensive grade of either team, but how did he do? He um, he had a pretty decent grade of a 67.3. Um, a lot of him with being such an explosive runner, um, the more snaps he has, he's not going to have a um, huge jump in his score just overall with the way he's been playing. The most surprising thing to me this year is he's graded out pretty poorly in the past and has been one of the best in the country in the run, um, which if you had told South Carolina fans that last year that you'd get Tavian Feaster coming in and not really factoring in as a receiver, but being one of the best, you know, just drop back running backs uh, in the country, I think would be um, kind of surprising. But um, Brian Edwards, again, this week was the top graded offensive player with a 70.2. South Carolina had a lot of players in the slightly above average, but not great range. Um, they had, Four of their five um, offensive linemen graded out in that range. Um, Feaster graded out at 67.3. Um, you have Rico Dowdle in his one snap, you know, put graded out, you know, pretty decently. And then you have a whole bunch of guys that are hovering right around that average of 60. Um, but I think where we're seeing issues is that South Carolina, while they have Brian Edwards and at this point Tavian Feaster, um, there hasn't been a second receiver that has stepped up this year and been consistently. Um, a threat to, um, you know, either hit a home run ball or just be a consistent third down target. Um, if we look at the, the lowest grades of the day belong to um, two tight ends and three receivers are your lowest five grades of the day, um, which just can't really happen. And I think that um, it, it kind of hurts Ryan Holinsky to not have um, another guy that he can really count on all the time like he can Brian Edwards. Yeah, I mean, that has become really apparent. And a couple of weeks ago, it felt like the conversation was who was the third guy because I think people were still kind of hanging on to what Shy Smith did last year and saying he's clearly the second best guy. But in terms of productivity, I mean, I guess he's second on the team in catches, but just hasn't had an impact at all. So it's not even the third receiver as much as, you know, what you're saying, which is the second receiver. And I guess that would be something. Uh, to the people that have really criticized Brian McClendon and criticized him on Saturday, I thought the game plan was fine. I thought Carolina showed uh, you know a good mix of things. They threw down the field. They had some diversity in the running game, more pin and pull. We saw that kind of mixed in with some counter actions as well. Um, we saw Carolina attempt to toss that didn't go well, but that wasn't you know the fault of the play calling. So I think those arguments are a little bit silly. But where we may have a valid criticism for Brian McClendon 
is that that is his group, the wide receivers. And whether it's Xavier mm-hmm. Leggett, whether it's Chavis Dawkins, whether it's Josh Fan, Shai Smith, no one has really been able to emerge. And football is such a complex game, so I'll be curious to get your take on this. But Carolina's passing game in general has just been, I mean, pretty poor for most of the season. I guess, I guess you could just call it inconsistent if you want to. Some of that had to do with a couple of different starting quarterbacks, obviously Ryan Holinsky being injured. Some of that has to do, I think, with the offensive line and shaky pass protection at times. And some of it has to do with wide receiver play. It sounds like, at least in the case of this game, of those three facets, it's probably mostly on the receivers in terms of Carolina only ending up with 170 passing yards. Yeah, so um, 38 pass attempts, 10 pressures. um, And of those 10 pressures, um, they definitely, which was the correct call by, by PFF, gave the sack to Ryan Holinsky. He should have recognized the blitz from the slot. If he does, um, I have no problem with that play call whatsoever. They had shown some diversity in the running game. Um, you, you know, some of your, um, your field gets condensed as you get down onto like the five or six yard line. They decide to pass it, and Holinsky just missed the blitz on that one. But oh, the overall team allowed four or um, sorry, ten pressures um, on the game. Holinsky got hit four times, um, which when you throw it 38 times is not the worst thing in the world. Like that could definitely be better. Um, I think the rain had a little bit to do with it. I also think just the inconsistency with, um, you know, Ryan Holinsky gets hurt last week playing by far the best game of his career against Georgia gets hurt. Um, he's coming back. Even if he practiced fully, he's still limited a little bit. Um, you know, a little bit of um, reps are there. Somebody suggested that in the rain, um, maybe your guys are a step slow, so some of those deep balls that look like they were just overthrown may be, you know, perfect throws and better conditions and things that, you know, Ryan Holinsky is going to have to adjust to. But at the same time, um, I saw a thread on Gamecock Central about how, you know, was Jake Bentley um, – where was Jake Bentley at this point in his career? And I kind of tongue-in-cheek commented still on the bench because his first game was the seventh game of the season. Um, so at this point, we're looking at Ryan Holinsky – um, having faced three top 10 defenses, um, playing through two injuries um, in bad weather conditions today or uh, Saturday. And he's still been decent enough, and they've been able to win games with him. Um, now, he hasn't gone out and won a game yet, and I think he will do that, um, whether that's next week at Tennessee. But there, I think there's going to be some game where he's going to go out and he's going to have a career day. Um, and really inject some life into the offense. But I didn't really have a lot of concerns with the offense, honestly, against a very good uh, Florida Gator defense in some pretty bad conditions and down a starting running back. Um, I, I thought, actually, the offense was pretty good to put up 27 points. Um, you know, the story of that game, I think, is South Carolina is just a little bit unlucky. Even uh, they forced a couple fumbles and didn't recover them. Um, you got the big play to um, – I can't remember who it was, it may have been Copeland, that um, scored against Jamie Robinson. Um, PFF thought that was really good coverage. Um, just maybe a, a missed, just missed timing there, or, um, you know, you don't make the tackle after you go for the jump ball, anything like that. Florida hit a couple plays that you know, may have been a little bit lucky for whatever reason. Um, I think that's the more of the storyline than South Carolina's offense wasn't good because, I mean, the success rate looks good. The um, South Carolina's running backs, I, I think fans get a little frustrated with – they would rather see South Carolina go out and throw it for 500 yards a game than to go out and control the clock and run it for 200 yards. Um, but Mon Denson played well. Tavian Feaster played well. And so I think it's just a different look than we're 
used to from South Carolina, but that doesn't mean it can't be successful. No, and, and I I really appreciated that. I, I've been saying for, for a couple of years now that Carolina needs to rely more on running the ball just because at this point, whether it's Jake Bentley, whether it's Ryan Helinski, young and injured and playing in the rain or whatever, they need to focus on running the ball more, especially as well as they do it this year. Don't ask your quarterbacks to do too much because, frankly, like you said, you know they don't have a quarterback right now that has proven that he can, to this point, go out there and win you a football game. Not to say that Ryan Helensky is not going to be that guy. Or not that he's not that guy right now, but he just he hasn't done it yet, so you don't want to ask him to do too much. And to your other point, I said, I don't remember if I said it on another Carolina podcast or on my local show on 107.5 The Game, but I said last week that this is probably a race to 30. And if you told me that Carolina scored 27 points against what you're correctly pointing out as an excellent Florida defense, I would have thought Carolina won the game. And the other, the flip side of that, kind of what you're saying with Carolina getting unlucky is is definitely true. But I look at it, I guess I look at it a little bit differently and just say, because I don't know how I feel about luck and I don't want to get off on like a whole philosophical tangent here, but it just seems like when Carolina is in close games, I guess the Georgia game being a, a notable exception because they made way more mistakes than Carolina in that game, but it just seems like other teams have players making plays more than Carolina has that. And for Kyle Trask, I mean, he started actually fewer games than Ryan Helensky in his career, and he was doing this on the road. He was dealing with the same wet ball. You could say that his playmakers were, I mean, I think Florida's got a better group of receivers than Carolina, and it sounds like that was borne out in the numbers, but that would be the only frustration. Again, not that I think this is on Helensky, not that, you know, he should have had to go out there and throw for, you know, 360 yards to win the football game, but it's just a little bit frustrating when the reasons for one guy not succeeding are, are you know very similar in, in terms of the situation to another guy who just happens to be succeeding. Kyle Trask, maybe he didn't play as well as Helensky in terms of the PFF numbers, but the difference was kind of the plays that that he made, the ability to extend plays at time at times that what ended up being uh, the first time Florida took the lead, he converted two third downs with his leg. Obviously, you mentioned was able to scramble around and get Florida into a fourth and three, and then it was his legs again that helped him convert that fourth and three to keep Carolina off the field, and then to go ahead and and, and score that touchdown. Obviously, through those two touchdown passes to ice the game late. So that was just something that really stood out to me and wasn't totally borne out in the numbers, but it's at some point it's just about making plays, I feel like. Absolutely, and I think if you you know were to flip those two and say, you know, if Ryan Holinsky doesn't or sees the blitzer there and, you know, is able to deliver a ball, he had Brian Edwards open over the middle of the field, and I think he was just waiting for a little bit more separation. Um, if he gets that out a little bit quicker, which usually he is, he's uh, by the numbers the quickest trigger in the SEC right now. Um, if he gets that out a little bit earlier, and let's say Kyle Trask doesn't hit that pass as he uh, scrambled out on fourth and three, that's a completely different game. Um, and so a, a lot of times I do kind of subscribe to the theory that um, you can't really control close games. There isn't really, other than Nick Saban, a coach in any level of football that can say I'm substantially more successful in close games than the average person as far as it goes ratio to their um, you know, to how they play overall. Nick Saban obviously wins a lot of close games because Nick Saban wins a lot of games in general. Um, but at the same time, South Carolina does need to have, you know, they do need to hit that pass. And we've said it for years of, well, they were one pass away. Well, you know, last week against Georgia, we see they made the plays when they needed to and Georgia didn't. Um, this week, they didn't make the plays against Florida when they needed to. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair distinction. It just, I guess it felt like the margins were a little tighter because I didn't leave that game thinking that Florida was... 11 points better than Carolina. I left that game feeling like it was a very winnable game for Carolina. I think most Carolina fans felt that way. And it just felt like a familiar refrain, you know, to the North Carolina game. And I mean, even to the Missouri game, which is, um, I mean, the, I guess the most unreasonably lopsided result uh, this season for Carolina, the Alabama one's the only look, the only one that you look at and say, yeah, Carolina's probably 
23 or 24 points worse than Alabama. But I, I don't know if they are top to bottom a worse team than North Carolina. I definitely don't think they're 20 points worse to a Missouri team that just lost to Vanderbilt. Um, and I don't think they're 11 points worse than Florida. So I, I guess it's it's more about just sort of looking for where those margins are. And I mean, you're, you're probably exactly right, just in terms of it, it almost being a toss-up. It sounds like just, I don't want to say random because it's guys making plays, but over, say, a 10-year span, that, that stuff probably um, evens out. But it just, at home and in that kind of setting, you and especially as much as Carolina controlled both sides of the line of scrimmage and the tempo of that game for the first three quarters to collapse that significantly in the fourth quarter for the second year in a row, I think it has a lot of people, myself included, really asking hard questions. Yeah, and absolutely. And I will say the flip side of that is that this is the first time that you looked at South Carolina and said, wow, they can actually hang with this top 10 team. And we can argue whether Florida actually is a top 10 team. I think they're very good. Um, I also think it was a weird game Saturday. And so maybe hard to judge just from that. Um, but at the same time, you can look at that and say, okay, South Carolina just beat a top five team on the road, came back home and played with another top 10 team um, for three, you know, three quarters. And, you know, we could say, you know, Will Muschamp takes a lot of criticism and some of it rightfully so, but, you know, Steve Spurrier would make mistakes a lot of times too. He would go and, you know, beat Alabama and then lose the next week to Kentucky. So it's not like it's ever, um, something new and I think that's a lot of what frustrates South Carolina fans is that they think they're hoping for you know maybe this is the year that you know we string together a couple wins and um, you know things go right for us and hey it's end of October and we're still in the SEC um, SEC East hunt and we haven't been there in a while Um, and then you lose to Florida and you know back to square one you're three and four and um, you know don't doesn't really get any easier going forward. And for Carolina, and for Carolina fans, the way that the season has turned around, I mean, if if I told you three weeks ago that you'd be coming off the biggest upset in school history and then a game where you lost late but were leading after three quarters, I mean, that would have been unforeseeable after the Missouri game. Just the way that they've turned around the season in terms of confidence and the energy is outstanding, especially going into a stretch where Carolina is probably going to be favored in the next three games. And then you have a trip to College Station, which looked daunting at the beginning of the season, and Texas A&M... Looks like the wheels are dangerously close to coming off. I have no idea um, what Texas A&M team South Carolina will see when they make their way to College Station, but they still have you know, a, a, a possibility to finish the season very strong despite this uh, disappointing Florida game. Uh, one other place I wanted to go with this, though, I, I meant to ask you this earlier, but I'm glad we, we had that as sort of a, as sort of a tangent because that was, that was good. I, I think that's what people are looking for in terms of answers to some of those bigger questions. But I think one other thing that we haven't uh, talked about from Saturday necessarily that was a little bit surprising was that Florida was able to score 38 points. They're a team that has been inconsistent offensively. I think they've been better under Kyle Trask. They haven't been explosive running the ball, and obviously they had the huge uh, 75-yard touchdown run. But I just did not – I didn't see a scenario where, where Florida was going to score that many points against Williams-Brice. But I also didn't feel like the defense played terribly. And it doesn't sound like the numbers uh, necessarily affected that either unless they did, and I'm just mistaken. So you're absolutely right. And to kind of point out how weird of a game it is, Florida was below national average in success rate, which generally is a um, fairly decent measure of how good an offense is working. They were below national average in success rate in three or four quarters. And you would expect, okay, the fourth quarter is when they, they did well. No, they were below national average in success rate in the fourth quarter. They hit some plays, some timely plays when they needed to, got bailed out by a couple penalties, um, things like that. But the second quarter was the only quarter where they were above 40, uh, 40% in success rate. 
So the first, third, and fourth quarters, they're running a less than 50% um, successful plays. And South Carolina was able, you know, was able to stop a lot of that. Um, you give up the big touchdown to um, on the 75-yard touchdown run. Um, that hurts, obviously. It still only counts as one successful play, so it doesn't really help your success rate that much. Um, but I think it, it did change the course of the game, and I think it, you know, the momentum shifted there. Um, one of Florida's touchdowns, I think, wouldn't have happened. South Carolina has to go for the ball, uh, go for it on fourth and three from their own, maybe 35 or something like that. Florida gets really good field position. Um, so I think that later in the game, um, some of the things made it look a little bit more lopsided than it maybe should have been. Um, but at the same time, you look at it and it was a weird game that pace-wise. Um, Florida had 16 drives, which is well above the national average of 12.5. Um, ran way fewer plays than national average. Uh, had a lot of three and outs. Had a lot of unsuccessful drives. Um, really didn't average that many yards per play, but really made the most of their scoring opportunities. And I, I think that's where um, that's not sustainable for a team um, throughout the season. And it just happens sometimes. Um, the flip side of that would be last year against Missouri. Um, Missouri in that weird monsoon game had one of the worst success rates or one of the worst um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> one of the worst uh, points per scoring opportunity um, I've ever seen from a game. And that's not sustainable for a defense. That's not sustainable for an offense, but sometimes you're going to have those outlier games. And I think that Saturday probably was one of those. And so I guess a long roundabout answer is yes, the numbers show that South Carolina's defense played really well. Um, if we look at even just pure PFS grades, um, nine of 11 starters had an above average PFF grade. Um, the only ones that had below average grades were J.C. Horn, who by the numbers didn't really have a poor impact on the game, only gave up two receptions for 19 yards. And R.J. Roderick ended up having a um, below average game for the first time this season. And so those were your only two starters that end up with what PFF would describe as a below average game. Um, yet South Carolina gives up 38 points. And so I think sometimes you just have to, to say that while, yes, you need to prevent that and you need to try to stop that from happening, you have weird games. Um, a similar game would be Illinois and Wisconsin. Illinois made the most of their scoring opportunities. They, like Florida, had, I think, averaged six points a scoring opportunity and didn't have that many opportunities. Um, but it was enough to win against a really, really good Wisconsin defense that really didn't play poorly at all in the game. Yeah, both cases of like some of the most bizarre snowball effect that I've seen. I think that's probably a fair way to categorize what happened in, in both of those games and especially uh, this Carolina game late. Not surprised to hear you say that R.J. Roderick had one of the two worst grades on the team. I think he, I mean, just based on the eye test, I think he was probably, I don't know exactly how pro football focus um, characterized this, but he seemed to be responsible for both of Florida's long touchdowns. Obviously the one that you mentioned earlier, that I think I guess it was Copeland. Is he number fifteen? That he caught it in between yeah. Jamie and, and Roderick, and then Roderick. It looked like he was maybe trying to play the tip. Um, I don't know if he thought that Jamie mm -hmm. was going to get there or had gotten there. But in any case, you know, if, if you're a safety, your job is to make sure that nothing gets behind you, not to necessarily be opportunistic first. I thought that was a pretty poor play. And then the seventy-five yard touchdown run. Uh, it shouldn't have happened because of the hold and because of the false start. Uh, that was you know clearly R.J. Roderick had had gotten out of position and just left a you know, a, a hole that you could have driven a 18 wheeler through. And uh, that seemed to be his responsibility. So no surprise there. Uh, JC, I would imagine um, he had a, a couple of good coverages. There was one just like fade basically down the sideline. He did a good job of using the, 
sideline as a second defender and uh, whoever the Florida receiver was caught it, but it was out of bounds. I thought that was um, a nice play by him. I imagine his run defense grade was was pretty poor because it seemed like he got kind of caught out there in the open, um, missed some tackles and let some guys get yards after contact. So I would imagine that's where his grades were low. Um, and on the flip side of that, I know Jamie Robinson did give up that touchdown or he was in coverage when the touchdown was given up. If they gave most of the blame to Roderick, I would say that maybe this is still the case, but Based on what I watched, I would say he was probably one of the better defenders out there for Carolina on Saturday. Did he have one of the higher grades on the team? So you'd be exactly right there. His overall grade was a 70.7. He didn't grade out very well against the run, but he had his second best coverage grade of his career. Um, And just to give you an indication of how PFF works, coming into this game, he'd given up seven career catches for 85 yards um, and no touchdowns. And what he was credited with at least is he was targeted five times and gave up five receptions for 45 yards, Um, had the interception, um, had the long touchdown, which they didn't really blame him for. It wasn't really a great throw went up there and I think just got caught out on a jump ball, but expected to have safety help. Um, And then other than that play ended up giving up four catches for eight yards, um, forced a fumble on one of them, didn't miss a tackle. um, And then had the interception on the overthrown ball. um, I think early in the third quarter, um, and so he ended up with a 73.8 coverage grade, which despite the numbers that look like they're not that great, um, giving up a touchdown and giving up five receptions on five targets, um, he had one of the better coverage grades of his career. And so that just kind of shows how PFF doesn't necessarily use the stats in the same way that we might just look at a box score and um, attribute you know, blame or um, credit to a player. Yeah, well, that, that's um, good because his, his tackling in space after the catch like really impressed me on multiple occasions. Yeah. And I guess that's borne out in the four catches for nine yards or whatever it was after just the the touchdown that he gave up early. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, as always, Javon Kinlaw was number one, um, best highest graded player in the game for like the, I think sixth time this season. Um, he ended up with a better rush defense grade than pass defense grade this um, this game, which is a little bit rare for him. But I mean, he's one of, I think, nine players in the SEC with an elite rush defense grade and pass rush grade. Um, Aaron Sterling played well. And then JT Ebay has actually been one of the best players on the team the past three weeks. Um, third straight game with at least a 72 um, defense grade with the highest graded uh, player other than Kim Law against the run, had the highest tackling grade, and had an above-average coverage grade. So just have to give JT Ebay a shout-out for being much better than a lot of people have given him credit for recently. Yeah, and a couple of big plays. I mean, he made some tackles in space on Saturday, which was nice. And then I think we mentioned it last week, but had a huge play uh, late in that Georgia game to keep them out of comfortable field goal range that they had to attempt to Hail Mary there at the end of the game. His his improvement has been uh, nice to see throughout the season. Now, if Carolina could just get both of their safeties to play a really good game at the same time, you know, maybe, you know, they'd sure up the back end and not give up those those huge plays like that. Was there anything else that stood out to you in terms of trends or or numbers on defense? Anyone that had a a better game than it seemed like just watching the game or, or a little bit worse than what it seemed like watching the game? I think one of the things I was going back through, this is a more of a season grade thing, um, but South Carolina's defense has been really good this year. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with there's no weak link. Um, if you look at the snap totals and the PFF grades of players, most teams that I looked at, and admittedly I didn't look at every team in the country, um, will have a couple outliers here and there that are having uh, poor games or poor seasons. Um, but you have to go all the way down to – 32 snaps to find the first South Carolina defender with a below average grade. Other than Jamias Williams has a below average grade. He has more snaps than that. Obviously not with the team anymore. Um, I think he would have started to lose some of his um, 
snaps to eBay and Roderick and um, Robinson and that combination in the back. Um, but I think South Carolina's defense this year is it's not as much that there's a ton of stars on this defense. It's that there aren't a lot of weak links. Um, and while South Carolina could probably have a couple more stars on offense to, um, you know, have an explosive play here and there, um, like the, like Florida was able to have, um, I think that South Carolina's defense, this is definitely a trend, and it's not something that's just a game or two. That I, I think the rest of this season we can look at South Carolina's defense as being um, one of the better defenses in the conference, I think. Yeah, well, that's good news with, with a couple more tough – or I say tough – not really tough going to Tennessee and Texas A&M, but two more road games. And if defense travels and if Ryan Holinsky, you know, I don't know exactly what his health is going forward. He actually, I mean, he moved around pretty well. I mean, it looked like on a couple of those deep balls, he didn't step into the throw, which Eric Kimry said was probably a case of him protecting his leg a little bit, even if not totally consciously. But uh, he ran a quarterback draw and got four or five yards. He kept the ball on a quarterback read. He may have had another rushing attempt. I don't totally remember, but he didn't look... I mean, it's not like he was limping around the field Saturday, so that's good news for Carolina. But, um, you know, always good when you can pack your defense and take it on the road, which they're going to have to do next week as they go up to Knoxville, where they're, uh, I think, a four-and-a-half-point favorite is where that line opened to try to, I say get back on track. The Florida game wasn't a disaster. It was good for three quarters. Unfortunate, somewhat inexplicable, uh, you know, kind of unlucky, if you want to call it that snowball effect there um, at the end. But, uh, Will, I appreciate you you helping us break this down. And I'm, I'm glad in some ways that the numbers – say that Carolina played a good game. In some ways, it's kind of frustrating, but I'm also glad that you were able to bring in the S&P to kind of explain how, how much of an outlier this was for Florida in terms of their offensive efficiency, because I think that um, probably more than anything else tells the story of what happened on Saturday. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, man. And y'all, don't forget to follow him on Twitter at WHelms21, and be sure to check out his company. The website is prepra.com, prep dash ra.com. It's SAT prep and tutoring and basically everything you could possibly need to help student-athletes get into school so they can play college and actually be student-athletes because that's something that we all value here. Will and I both value education very much, and I really think that is like the coolest thing ever. And I don't know if other people are doing this. I certainly haven't heard of it, but I think that's such an awesome and underrated part of, like I said, getting someone into school and and letting them pursue their career as a student-athlete at whatever the next level may be for them. So more information there, prep-ra.com. Will, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next week. Appreciate it. All right, thanks again so much to Will. Good stuff as always. Don't forget to follow him on Twitter at WHelms21. Check out his website, prepra.com. That's prep-ra.com. Uh, not my favorite weekend ever to be on Twitter. It was it was a lot of angry people and not angry like angry after the Missouri game where it's, you know, kind of funny because it's, I don't know, you know, like humorous negativity, like the kind of negativity that people practice as a means to cope with something sad like their team just laying an egg. But it was much more genuine vitriol this week directed at the officials so not not a lot of great stuff from Gamecock Twitter but I did see these two things both from the world of college football that I wanted to mention as our uh, best from social media before we get out of here this weekend first of all this is from Saturday down south for those of you that missed it at the beginning of the Oklahoma game they drive that wagon that's behind a couple of horses across the stadium as sort of part of their intro and it's a whole big thing well it took a sharp left turn, did the horses, on Saturday for whatever reason, and it sent the cart spilling over and all the contents of the cart, including the people, uh, falling out all over the field. If you haven't seen the clip, you should go watch it because it makes more sense if you've actually seen it. But uh, Saturday on South just tweeted the video with the uh, caption, me when the hot donuts now sign is on at Krispy Kreme. Uh, so that was good, very accurate. Also, I just wanted to mention this because so much of this weekend for Carolina fans was about poor officiating. 
And uh, they were not alone. Lane Kiffin was also upset with the officiating. He got fined actually $5,000 for his criticism of the officials, but not in the press conference and not on the sideline. He took to Twitter after a game and tweeted, at Conference USA, that's all the tweet says, and the picture is a picture of three officials wearing you know, the dark sunglasses that blind people will wear with seeing eye dogs and um, those sticks, forgive me for not knowing what exactly they're called, but the, the sticks that help blind people actually walk around, implying that, yes, the referees of Conference USA are blind. He was fined $5,000, which is definitely worth it because he won social media, and I know that's really all Lane Kiffin cares about. So, Lane Kiffin, thank you so much. You are a treasure. Do not ever change. That's all we got for y'all this week. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends if you like it and you want us to keep doing it. Also, be sure to check out all the great coverage of South Carolina football. And like I said, we've got the two basketball teams season starting up very soon. Gamecock Central is a great place to check all that out. And if you're not an insider on Gamecock Central and you want to be, you want to try it out for a month for free, you can use the exclusive podcast code GCPOD. That'll give you a month Gamecock Central insider access for free. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you again Friday. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads Money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text Hope NY in New York.